Hello again, friends, and welcome to the Young, Young Anglicans podcast. The Young Anglicans podcast is a place for conversation and discussion about ministry to teenagers through the lens of Anglicanism. It's hosted by me, Andrew Unger, and me, Eric Overholt. We're both real-life Anglican youth pastors who want to see young people find and follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. We're glad you're with us. And today's topic, we're, first of all, we're back from our hiatus. It wasn't really a, a planned hiatus. We just didn't record for eight months. But now... Yeah, we're just losers. Now, now we're back, and we figured we'd sort of go back to first things, do our sort of Young Anglicans podcast prolegomena. I think I used that term right. Wow. Right? Wow. I I went to Bible school once, um, (laughs) and we're going to talk about Anglican youth ministry. What is it in the first place? All of our podcasts so far have been sort of about particulars within Anglican youth ministry, but now we're going to have the big conversation. What is Anglican youth ministry? Um, But Eric, you have some disclaimers for us. Yeah, mostly mostly it's just that I want to point out for me that um, I'm— I haven't been to seminary. I've been to music conservatory, um, but I don't think that really counts as any sort of theological education. Um, not that I'm trying to discount myself even before I say anything, but just to say uh, you may disagree with us, and uh, we welcome your disagreement, and we would love to hear it in the comments on Facebook posts and other things like that. Just co- get in touch with us, uh, share with us ways you disagree, because this is a conversation, and we want to we want to hear your thoughts and responses to what we have to share today. Yeah, we want to get we want to get ratioed. Have you heard that term? I have not. Ratioed. So on Twitter, if you have more comments than you do likes on a tweet, you've been ratioed. It, it's proof that people hate what you said because if someone comments, they're more likely to be saying something opposed to you rather than to say like, "Yeah, that's good." So you add up likes and retweets, and then you sort of see the ratio between that and comments. And that's how you know uh, whether people like what you say. So we want to okay. be ratioed. We want you to to say lots of stuff at us. We want to stir okay, the that, pot a little bit. That may take it a little further than, than I would have gone, but that's <laughs> probably Mr. Non-Confrontational in me coming out there. But, yeah, that might be. Uh, but that's cool. All right. So, and even as part of that disclaimer, we recognize the word Anglican um, can at times become so broad, it's effectively useless as a term. And I say that only because uh, entering into Anglicanism uh, in college, you sort of start attending an Anglican church. And I think a lot of people who are in the ACNA who have come to it from the evangelical world sort of are fall in love with liturgy and smells and bells and all this great stuff. But then um, you sort of ask, okay, I want to learn about being Anglican. What does it mean? Um, What's the book I read? And people say, there is no book. You just have to kind of trust me. Or they'll say, like, read all of Richard Hooker's Ecclesiastical Polity. Or they'll say, go read John Henry Newman. Or they'll say, you know, they'll say, go read the Anglican that I like. And I think they're the definitive (laughs) Anglican. Um, And all those other Anglicans who are just opposite of me, but still fully Anglican. um, You know, it's like having, (laughs) when I discovered that J.I. Packer is Anglican, um, and is as Anglican as sort of the highest church Anglo-Catholics, um, you start to recognize that whatever Anglican means, it's a pretty big box in which to put our ideas. Yep. Um, so it seems things like liturgy, sacraments, I mean, some people appeal to Cranmer, then other people say, well, the church in England was there before Cranmer, and so, yeah. This is our big caveat that we're about to have a conversation about Anglican youth ministry, but we recognize that such a project is at some level futile because we'll, we're going to try and say things that maybe 80% of us can agree with at any one time. That's fair, right? Sure. Absolutely. And I, I got, so you're, if we can just dive in, yeah. you're, even your caveat there brought up a question in my mind, which is you're talking about there's no like definitive place to go and find out kind of what we think. This is a podcast that's uh, produced on some level uh, under the banner of the ACNA. Right. 
and the ACNA has produced a catechism. That's uh, true. Is that one? Is that a place that we could point to and say, "There's, there's what we mean when we say Anglicanism on some level." I guess so. Yeah, I, I we can say that's what it means to be in the ACNA. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on the record and say I have not spent a lot of time reading the ACNA's oh, catechism. Okay. I know, but. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of, and I don't want to go too far down this path, but it's sort of like saying, is the Episcopal Church thoroughly Anglican? Um, and does being Anglican also mean being Orthodox? And does it mean being traditional rather than progressive in your theology and et cetera, et cetera? So um, it would be hard to say that the Church of England is not Anglican, although I guess some people would say that. Um <laughs> And like, they're, they're, these are those, these are those like, yeah, this is the place that it's just not useful yeah. for the two of us to <laughs> go down this road. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I probably have some kind of opinion on that, Yeah. but I, I, it, let's leave that up to the bishops and let the bishops, you know, yeah. hash that out. Um, so to try and bring it all back to youth ministry, I, yeah. this is the kind of thing I, I, I started in Anglican youth ministry in 2007. And when I got the position that I had, that I got, um, I had been uh, an undergrad at Moody Bible Institute for four years, and I had been attending an Anglican church for three, um, and part of the job description was to create this Anglican youth ministry. And Mm. so all of our, all these musings we just did is part of the baggage that I enter into that moment where I say, okay, what on earth does an Anglican youth ministry look like? Like, Mm -hmm. how do I take these big questions about what is Anglican, and then apply it to um, dodgeball and pizza. And my initial feeling was like dodgeball and pizza is interdenominational. Um, no one has the corner on the dodgeball market. And so and so the, the, I, I thought initially, like, that's a meaningless category. But I think in the, in the 12 years since then, I've grown into some appreciation that there are some things that the Anglican Church has in its backlog and its history um, that make my youth ministry Anglican. Um, I'd like to think at least some of them also overlap with just the groups. I group of kids that I have and have had over the last 12 years, um, that are just weird. And sometimes it's hard (laughs) to distinguish between what is just like weird and what is Anglican. Like I've got a very bookish group. And so sometimes people think of the Anglican church as a very, intellectual kind of group. I think that accusation gets thrown around or that praise, depending on how you look at it. Um, And so it might be that my youth ministry is a little bit bookish for that reason, or it might just be because I've got nerdy kids um, Mm -hmm. whom I love. Yeah. I I think some, again, what you're, what you're talking about there is it, it really has a lot to do with the, the type of youth group, or, or even even kind of the model that that your youth group has taken on, mm-hmm. you know. So, for example, my youth group, uh, it, it's it's been a very ecclesial model, to use a big fancy word. We really ultimately what what's happened with our youth group is we've planted a church within our church, hmm. uh, especially because like half of the students in my youth group don't even go to our church and wouldn't call themselves Anglican and might even kind of like push the idea of being Anglican away. Yeah. Uh, and that's been its own challenge, but, but then it goes to, okay, we call ourselves, we have been, I guess until recently been calling ourselves an Anglican youth group. Yeah. What? And yet we're this, this church within a church. And so that it brings up those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, And I think, so I think part of Anglicanism includes um, the Eucharist and includes this sense of of being a um, whole church. I mean, I think Anglicans have an easy time doing the intergenerational thing because we already have this primary, for most of us, weekly sacrament that we engage in. Um, and we have, you know, people either lining up or at the rail, you know, kids through adults all together. Right. Um, and right. so in, in those ways, um, I feel like someone someone might say, well, Eric, the fact that you have all these kids who don't 
go to your church. That's not very Anglican of you. Um, <laughs> at the same time, I mean... Okay, I'm going to stop telling them about Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at, at the same time, I mean, the, the Sunday school movement starts in the Church of England. This movement to reach out to um, to kids who are unchurched starts in England, starts from people who are in the Church of England. And so I think that's um, that's certainly... Again, you get to claim it as Anglican. You can say, I'm actually more Anglican than you because I'm doing what um, Robert Rakes did with the Sunday School movement. Um, So learn your Anglican history. That's the fun part about being Anglican is finding some obscure Christian in the history of England and then being like, look, I'm doing what they did, so I'm Anglican. Um, oh my gosh, smugness. Is is this one of the defining characteristics of Anglicanism? Is that what you're telling me, smugness? I think it must be. Um, (laughs) Okay, so what what would you say are some Anglican things either you do or you've seen someone do in a youth ministry where you look at it and say, okay, that's Anglican that they're doing that? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the easiest way to answer that question would, would just be practices, right? I mean, that's that. this is one, like, really obvious, I would say, even, like, surface-level way to... to identify something as Anglican mm-hmm. is it is it utilizing the prayer book and and the the offices in the prayer book in some way is it structured around that type of liturgy yeah um, written prayers yeah things like that and uh, I haven't I guess I have done a little bit of, of evening prayer in my youth group. I've definitely used the family prayer liturgies from the ACNA mm-hmm. uh, but not only just within our youth group, like I make a copy for each of the students and say, take this home and use it. Yeah. Uh, because I think they're useful. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, uh, again, our end is not Anglicanism. Our end is Jesus. Uh, in right. all that we do, any of these liturgies, it's about us communing with Jesus in a, in a more substantive way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, I, I do agree with James K.A. Smith enough in that, that using those liturgies does form us. Right. Um, and so I think it's, they're very useful in that sense. It, yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm going to continue to encourage my students to do that. Uh, but I would even go a little further than that. Um, but because there's enough Anglo Catholic in me to say that there's a usefulness in, in other lesser sacraments, for example, mm-hmm. um, lowercase s sacraments. As yes. It were. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. And, and but and so those in some ways you could call Anglican, but now we're getting into you know schisms within sure. Anglicanism, um, which is fun, and that's what we all ultimately I think really like to talk about. But yeah, <laughs> certainly, certainly, just to go back to answer your question directly, the the first thing that comes to my mind are those practices using liturgies from a prayer book of yeah. some kind to to worship and pray together. Yeah, I think that's... The the one thing that all Anglicans agree on is, I mean, for the most part, is the, the prayer book, right? I mean, we, we sort of have that 1662 prayer book as the standard for worship, and that's um, that that's the, the point of, of unity. Um, in, in grad school, I did this um, paper on, in my theology class uh, on... Anglican understanding of Christ's presence in the sacrament. And basically, the my takeaway was when there are any number of um, Anglican theologies about Christ's presence. I mean, everything that's basically from uh, transubstantiation as it is. I mean, John Henry Newman, while he's still Anglican, sort of argues that transubstantiation is fine with the 39 articles and we can square these things together. All the way down to, I mean, almost... Zwinglian. It seems like Anglicans can't say Jesus isn't present. They have to, you know, affirm the real presence. Mm-hmm. But real seems to be able to mean as much or as little as you want it to. It's sort of this uniquely a sufficiently like, vague. Yeah. Word. Which, but but the thing that all Anglicans agree upon is that Jesus is present and that Jesus is present for the sanctification of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there is this process by which we do truly—that's another nice vague word—receive. Yeah. Um, and so the, the 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 most Anglican things, and in fact, I think for our students um, who will go to our Anglican churches when they're teenagers, and hopefully when they're in college, um, I mean, 
ultimately, hopefully, continue to follow Jesus. But we'd love for them to stay in this Anglican tradition that we've grown to love. Um, hopefully, when they show up at some other church that has a different churchmanship than the churches they've grown up in, they find enough in common because they've they've encountered the liturgy enough that they're like, okay, they do this a little bit differently. They do evening prayer differently. They do this a little bit differently. But this is still the kind of church that I grew up with. Um, mm. The music may be different. The songs may be different. The vestments might be different. But this is still an Anglican service. I'm I'm still encountering morning and evening prayer. Um, that morning and evening prayer piece is a piece that I've tried to put in a lot more. Um, I have a tendency sometimes to sort of do things for my youth ministry and like them on paper and like the ideals. And sometimes the students hate them, but I'm like, no, I'm doing evening prayer all the time. Um, But I think this is one that they actually enjoy. I think that structure for worship, um, we've been using that for our weekly program for a while. And I think it's actually helpful. We use it on our mission trips. We do sort of evening prayer every every night on our mission trips. Um, And I think it's sort of, we have an organization that runs the trip for us. And so when we're planning the week, it's like, okay, I know you want to have a team meeting every night, but we have to do our evening prayer thing. Like we have to do this like separate thing um, every single night. So you just kind of have to be okay with that. Um, and they're like, all right. And, and you know, dinner ends and they've, they've, they kind of want to hang out. And it's like, okay, but we got to go do evening prayer first. And there is a certain obligation out of it. Like, no, we have to do the thing, you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, I often, whenever I'm talking about obligation, I imagine um, that scene at the end of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, spoiler alert, where Voldemort is, is dueling with Harry and he says, and he makes him bow. And he's like, the niceties must be observed, Harry Potter. I think about that a lot when like, mm. we have to do evening prayer, the niceties must be observed. But, but um, you know, they, they do it, but I think that rhythm does help them. It helps frame that week, a week that's very chaotic, and the, the Anglican thing that we do is we recognize we're embodied people who live in time and space. And so we need to discipline ourselves and habituate, okay, every night we're going to gather together. We're not just going to have personal devotional time. We're not just going to sit around in a circle. We're going to worship Jesus. We're going to pray. We're going to read this psalm, a psalm together. We're going to read scripture together. And we're going to do this because this is how we remind ourselves of what's going on. Um, so you, yeah. you 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 mentioned earlier something about like the kids resisting that on some level, and what do you think? Although I guess you ultimately said that they've ultimately embraced it mm-hmm. as well. So talk about do you think that's distinctively because of your kids in um, your youth group, or or do you think it's because it's really that kind of practice that just kind of grows on you? Yeah, this is this is one of those mysteries of youth ministry of like. At what point are they doing things because they like me? Um, and yeah. well, what happens when you have nice kids who are like, well, Andrew likes doing this. And so we'll, 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 you know, indulge Andrew with his eccentricities just so we can, you know, be fine with it. Um, right. So that might be part of it. I think it might be the, the churches that I, I serve. Um, so my, my youth ministry serves three different churches. Um, mm-hmm. And it might just be that those churches have kids who are okay with evening prayer. Um, All Souls, the the main church that I'm at, is a bit more high church in its liturgy. And so I think the the students from that church have a sense of like, oh yeah, this is what we do. And they have a certain amount of pride in the liturgy, especially in the landscape of like Wheaton evangelicalism. There's a certain amount of pride in both the positive and vice ways where there's like, we're Anglican. We don't do that. We don't have... I, one of my students a number of years ago we talked about like screens in the sanctuary and she was just like Ugh, screens <laughs> like just the very notion of a projector projecting things in your space was like aesthetic heresy to her and so like uh, sometimes we have to wor- work on that on in ourselves but um it might just be my students i'd like to think that um over time a mission trip's a perfect time for me to sort of get the uh the offices into someone's life is Mm. to say like look we're on this this week-long trip you're already doing something different you're already in a different context i'm just gonna make you do this and they sort of accept it because they're like oh yeah this is we're on a mission trip we're now doing this different thing this is what we do here 
Mm. I think that makes a difference um, for the rest of the year. Because then if I start doing evening prayer somewhere else, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm kind of used to this. I'm used is to this there, structure. Is there any sense that they're going to take it from the mission trip and like start to employ it on their own at once they get back? Or is it just like, dive back into the real world? Yeah, I, I think in that sense, it uh, it has about as much success as any other youth yeah. ministry practice you hope that kids pick up right. when they're on a week-long retreat, right? Like you almost have to do the like, I know you're having this spiritual high now, but when you go home, how are you going to have Jesus in your life now? I mean, you got to <laughs> you got to put on your youth pastor voice and ask them to really feel it this time and and this time. I know we're going to sing this song again, but have you ever thought about the words? Um, Jesus <laughs> oh loves you. I, I, I'm so much more earnest than you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am earnest. I'm just burned out of a particular strain of, yeah, of sincerity, yeah. I guess. I get um, it. I get it. So, yeah, I think it's hard to get them to do it at home still. I think just like um, it's hard to get any teenagers to spend time with their Bible, it's hard yeah. for them to do it at home. And actually, I think Anglicanism, um, because there's this sort of, um, and I think this is true of a lot of ACNA churches, there's this sort of um, people who grew up in evangelicalism who have now graduated into Anglicanism. And so they don't, you know, they, they care about the sacraments every week, not the sermon every week, you know, the, the great sermon or whatever, but I'm still getting the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not about Bible memorization because we're not just cognitive people. We embody spiritual practices. What I've seen in my own life and in some ways in my in my ministry and in, in churches is this almost like I have a hard time getting my students to read their Bibles regularly. Like that sort of evangelical have your quiet time sort of thing seems so like... I don't know. It, it seems very like quaint to an Anglican. Like, oh, isn't that cute? Like you and your personal Bible time. Like, oh, that's sweet. Jesus doesn't work like that. We have the church. We don't need, <laughs> we don't need personal Bible times. We're, you know, and that's, that's certainly never articulated from the front. No priest is saying that to their congregation. No, no youth pastor is like actually saying out loud, like we're Anglicans, we're better than devotionals. But I, I think that gets... That's one of the flaws of Anglican youth ministry is as you incorporate some of these church practices, some of those personal practices become a little bit at odds or or, or can go to the back burner in that huh. sense. Yeah, but I would say we need to be regularly immersed in the scriptures. And unless you're going to have youth group every day, right? the, the church therefore isn't immersing me us in the scriptures every day and so the only way to do that would be to read the bible on my own in my right. house or with my family um so i guess i'm just trying to figure out what you mean um well, i don't again i think it's it's a it's habituated and people internalize it not intentional like no one's saying stop reading your bible every week um, right but i think because a lot of us become passionate about these Anglican practices and this Anglican way of life, um, it's like we don't have the room for, or we don't place as much of an emphasis on, like personal devotions. Like if yeah. you're at, if 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 you're at a low church evangelical church with no liturgy, I mean, all you have is, I may may not maybe not all you have, but what you have is scripture. Yeah. Um, you don't have sacraments. You can yeah. talk about habits, but you don't have spiritual practices. You don't have Lent. You don't have any of that stuff to talk about. So really, what is your message to, to students other than read your Bibles? Right. I mean, it's it's bigger than that, but it that can be like a mainstay of like, you need to have your one-on-one -on -one quiet time. Well, we're also talking about there's a Lent. There's, we're going through the church here, so you've got Lent coming up. Think about that. We've got, you know, we've got the opportunity for you to think about these feast days that we're going to gather for and and when you're in church people aren't i don't know if it, how it is at your church but people aren't bringing their bibles to all mm -hmm. souls for the, mm -hmm. the sermons um they get to hear the word spoken to them which is great but i don't think a lot of anglican churches do the sort of like pull out your bibles we're going to do an expository sermon thing although it, if j.i packer were preaching regularly at your church, you probably would be encouraged to do that. And that's sort of the breadth mm -hmm. of Anglicanism. But 
Um, but I would say by and large, part of the practice of, of Anglicanism, because in, within these tools, there's all, uh, within these practices, there's all these tools yeah. to make these practices useful and to give them some structure. One of those tools that we have is a lectionary. Yeah. So part of the reason why we're not necessarily doing uh, expository preaching every week is because uh, our priests or whomever is preaching is preaching from a lectionary passage. Right. And I know at our church, whenever we have a guest preacher come in, um, that's one of the things we always have to do. Check, well, are you going to preach from the lectionary or do you have something, you know, because you're talking about missions or you're talking about right. whatever you want to talk about something else. Um, but again, it, it, you know, even, even just in this conversation, I'm hearing there's other, there's other parts, other practices that we're talking about. You, you, you're bringing up the church calendar. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about lectionaries. We're talking about, um, yeah, prayer liturgies, um, all these kinds of things, which, which I think, again, to me, part of the reason why I'm Anglican is because um, I now have all these <clears throat> tools in my toolbox that are, that are not – I'm not just telling kids, go read your Bible and pray, mm-hmm. right? You, you have to do this. Read your Bible and pray, and if you know, and and instead I'm saying you need to pray. Here's a way to pray. Yeah. Here's because because I know when I do that, the kids all look at me like I don't know what that means. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what I would do. Mm-hmm. So I find it immensely helpful to be able to say, look, this here, this is a thing called morning prayer. Yeah, and it includes reading scripture, and it includes these these very structured prayers. But there's also other places for you to add your own free praises mm-hmm. and intercessions. Um, it, and it's just this thing. It's this very useful methodology by which we can introduce students into a life a life of devotion, yeah. not devotions, but a life of devotion. Right. And, and I think the challenge for Anglican youth ministry is to find ways to introduce that um, without feeling a certain amount of, without students feeling a certain degree of like overload and then they give up. Like yeah. the advantage of read your Bible every day or like here's a devotional book, just read this and read your Bible every day is it's simple, it's, it's targeted, it's, it's easy to do. When we say, look at all of these options, you've got the church here, here's, here's a change. And, you know, the, the liturgy will, the, the morning and evening prayer liturgy changes with the seasons. And here's where the collect goes, but you can use the collect of the, the week rather than like a generic collect. And you just sort of, it becomes all these options. Or it feels like, if man, if our students had a robust like morning and evening prayer life and they were like, practicing all these Anglican devotional practices that were really helpful, it would be awesome for them. But since teenagers are teenagers, um, well, humans are humans, and they will likely not do that. Um, There is this sense of, like, failure, um, and then you go, like, well, I guess I'm not doing any... Like, I think it's easy for them to give up because we haven't given them simple targeted tools. And so one of my challenges, I think, in encouraging my students, um, we've, we've a couple of times over the last year encouraged them to come up with a rule of life. We sort of talked about St. Benedict. We've done it twice this, this school year where we sort of talk about, look, Benedict had this rule that governed all kinds of things from how he was going to pray to how they were going to eat dinner to when they read scripture. Um, and so in the fall, I said, like, come up with your own rule, whatever it might be. Um, and a lot of them had difficulty thinking of something. And so the, this last time we did it, I said, okay, think of something to do in these four different categories. When are you reading scripture? When are you praying? And sort of how are you reading scripture and praying? What are personal habits you want to start or stop? And what are um, relational habits? Like how are you going to interact, interact with other people? Whether that's being more patient with your siblings or I'm going to not, you know, yell at my teacher every day. You know, I sort of gave them those categories and said, write something in each. But then I had to tell them at one point, and it just popped into my head, but I was like, oh, it's really important they know this, that um, every day you every day you do these things is a win, and every day you don't is, ju- is just a day you didn't do them. Because mm-hmm. um, it's easy to be discouraged in spiritual practices, and especially for teenagers who are incredibly impulsive, you know, 
it's hard for them to build up habits. And so when you say like, wouldn't it be great if you had this full rule of life? Um, and they go, yeah, it would. And then after two days, you know, the first day they only do half of it. And the second day they do a third of it. And they're like, I guess I won't have that rule of life. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's the, the, a real risk for all these Anglican practices is there's so many of them and they're so great. And everybody, adult and teenager alike, wants to have the status. They want to be the kind of person who's living the like full regulated Anglican life. And every time they're not at that ideal, they feel like a failure. Rather, what I try to do is say, every time you do even one of these things, that's a win. You have yeah. now done that thing, which has built virtue in your life. Doing it two days in a row is even better. But don't worry so much about like about your imperfections. Um, don't worry about getting to 100%. Worry about building on whatever you have. And, and seeing those as victories um, because yeah, but I think yeah I think I think it bears pointing out that you know, I grew up not in the Anglican Church mm-hmm. and was told you need to be reading your Bible and praying every day yeah. like do this every day yeah and as a teenager those days that I did were great but there those days that I didn't I felt like a failure yeah and if I missed a week, then it was like, well, I may as well not ever do it again yeah. <laughs> because because I suck so bad. Looks um, looks like I'm following so, Satan now. Yeah, exactly. I gave up a week on Bible reading. <laughs> exactly. So I, I I think I think that particular problem I, I don't think is unique to Anglican practices. Yeah. Um. But I I would say there was something else I was going to say about this. Um. Oh, but I I think the most important thing really is that – and what I want to teach my students is that these things that we do are not the end. This is not – we're not doing yeah. these so that they were done. That's not – that is like, no. If, if that's what you think, I would rather you not do them personally, Yeah, I, I, I think. I, actually, I may not think that, but um, – <laughs> but, we, we, the main thing I want them to know always, anytime we do anything, is our end is Jesus. Yeah. Our end is closer communion with our creator uh, and sustainer and savior and all those other you know, words yeah. that we can use for Jesus um, and, and the Heavenly Father and the Trinity. Um, <laughs> but the, the end, that has to always be our end. Yeah. And, and, it, and I, think, I think that goes a long way to alleviating a lot of the things you're talking about. Yeah. Right. Because, because of his faithfulness, um, I can miss a week and come back and his faithfulness to me says that I'm forgiven and that he's just delighted that I came back and he's there with open arms to welcome me back. Uh, so what, if our end is always Jesus Mm -hmm. and these things just become the means to that end. Yeah. So that's what I'm always going to tell students when I hand out a liturgy or when we do this, like guys, the words are not really what matter. They matter. Don't misunderstand. They matter. But, but what we're doing here is we're, we're trying, this is a means to an end. This gets us to Jesus in a way. And these are the gifts the church has given us to usher us and shepherd us toward Jesus. Yeah. And I think the, the the thing about Anglicanism is because we have so many awesome means to the end, we have more opportunity to mistake those means for the end themselves. Like we, because Agreed. we have all these awesome practices, it's much easier to mistake them for the point. Um, my spiritual director told me at one point, like Bible reading and prayer is not the th- like Jesus doesn't want people who read their Bibles every day. He wants people who love and follow him, and reading your Bible is is what helps you do that. But yeah. But Jesus' goal isn't to have people who faithfully read Scripture. Um, he doesn't want you to do things. He wants you. That that sounds like a real youth pastor talk right there. <laughs> That's good stuff. That'll preach. Um, so I think, again, to, to imagine, to think of another aspect of Anglican youth ministry, um, and it's on my mind because uh, I have a retreat for it this, this evening, um, is confirmation as a part of that process. Have you done confirmation at your church? Have you had have. the opportunity to do that? What was that like for you? Um, 
Well, it was making it up as I go along. So, <laughs> um, it, you know, and, and I got to the end of it. I, I had, I started out with three students and then one of their dads who had not yet been confirmed was also there. And it, <laughs> when it all, was all said and done, none of the students got confirmed <laughs> and only the dad did. <laughs> so the, the accusation I often hear from evangelicals about confirmation is that it's automatic that, that instead of having teenagers that, you know, with, with getting baptized, you often have to go approach your youth pastor or pastor and say, I want to be baptized There's a bit of initiative from the student. Whereas confirmation is like, we hold a class and then everybody just does it and they just get done. Um, mm -hmm. So whenever... Like bar mitzvah. Yeah. So whenever I um, have a student say no to confirmation, um, I, I it's like a personal victory for me in a weird way. Like, it, it's sort of like, oh, you took this seriously enough to say no. All right. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. I'm happy about that. And and many of them have come back, you know, a couple of years later and said, like, okay, this round we're doing confirmation. This time I do want to be confirmed. Uh -huh. Um which is like do you the, make him, the do you make him go through do you make him go through all the stuff again no no I mean they, they, okay so my my approach to confirmation um, and many people will many people will not take this route I'm pretty low on classwork and requirements mm -hmm. um, I'm a I'm a sort of maybe the word is structuralist it might not be the, the liturgy for confirmation the confirmands have to say the Apostles Creed and then the question is is this your faith? So I feel like my job is to prepare them so that they can answer that question honestly. Mm. Um, so the 1662 Catechism, um, someone at our church years ago did a sort of updated language version of that. It's not a translation because it's already English. But um, there are basically four main categories in it. Conf or, um, excuse me, creed, commandments, sacraments, and prayer. So we mm -hmm. just spend, we have sort of, four two-hour little segments where we teach on those we we do you know four hours one saturday four hours another saturday um we do a little retreat where we pray for the students and we talk about the fact that they're okay you know all this head knowledge but now you're choosing to follow jesus or not we have them sort of think through this decision that they're making and then and then we ask them why do you want to be confirmed and if they give me some sort of answer that that resembles wanting to follow jesus i'm all for it Mm -hmm. um interesting which it, this is the 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 sort of harsh realist in me um you might say well did they really make that decision you might say like well in a few years because we typically um put seventh and eighth graders through our confirmation classes um or should they they choose to put them through sounds a bit more yeah like they're forced <laughs> automatic to do it. yeah we we put them through this mess um but people might say, okay, well, they don't really fully understand this stuff, that they need to wait till high school to really make that decision. Um, uh, I'm still coming to understand a lot of those things you just mentioned. Can I just point that out? I mean, and, and that's to me, um, the, the, this idea of a teenage decision for Jesus um, is, I think, important for the life of an adolescent. Because in normal human development as an adolescent, you're forming your identity. And at some point being forced to a, a sort of crisis moment where you're making a decision, yes or no, I want to follow Jesus as mm -hmm. part of your identity formation, as part of your affinity formation, who do I belong to? I think that's another important part of it. These are all, I think it's valuable and an important tool because I think a lot of people do look back and say, there was a moment when I had to kind of say yes or no. Mm -hmm. um, but let's all be honest, that same type of decision is made in, liturgical and non-liturgical churches alike mm -hmm. all across the globe and it seems to have no particular like indicator of someone sticking in the church or not i mean maybe it does maybe people who don't who who are never faced with that choice sort of have an easier time sort of lapsing away but i think we all know a lot of people who have been baptized and confirmed or baptized as teenagers who less than a decade later seem completely uninterested in faith. Um, so I guess it's not automatic. I don't think there's a way to do confirmation that like ensures that they've quote-unquote really made the decision this time, that ensures that um, they are 
they're really locked in. Whereas if you do it too early or too late, or you don't teach them enough ahead of time, that's insufficient in really getting them locked in. Um, because like you said, we're all making that decision over and over again for all of our lives. Well, I mean, we can't get adults locked in to the faith, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. it, like life happens and, uh, you know, trying to come up with some sort of bulletproof, that, that's just not the way the world works. Yeah. I mean, that like we all we all love darkness way too much. Right. Hmm. And like life is about, um, learning to love the light more yeah. than we love the darkness. Um, but I, I, you know, that it's interesting because, I, and I, I think as we're talking about confirmation, I, I think for me, we need to back up a little bit therefore and talk about the place of a bishop. And hmm. The, and to me, this is to me this is is one of those kind of non-negotiable central parts of Anglicanism, uh, and I know I may be unique in that sense, uh, although I don't think so. Ultimately. No, I don't think so. Um, but you know, it, it's interesting because as I'm as I'm coming on board as a youth missioner in my diocese. Mm-hmm. And I'm 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 anticipating all the questions I'm going to start getting about. Well, you know, what about confirmation? And when are we going to do confirmation? And what does it mean to be confirmed? And mm-hmm. you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, that was one of the first questions I asked uh, my bishop. Okay, what? And he started talking about wanting it to be a mature decision. Okay. And he was talking about, you know, in in general society, we've we've made the decision that you're. or come to some sort of consensus that you're not really making the kind of important decisions that we would hope confirmation was Mm -hmm. until even the age of 18, for example. Yeah. So um, we're not going to let you vote. We don't think you're capable of making that kind of decision um, and those kinds of choices until you reach the age of 18. Uh, another another important number it seems in our society is sixteen. Yeah, is that's that's an age whereby we've we've come to an understanding that you have enough, you understand responsibility enough, and you can make um, thinking decisions enough that we're going to let you have a driver's license. Yeah, typically, although in California that's changing even. Um, but but what I see, what I'm seeing, practically speaking, what I'm seeing. Is I'm is that sorry that age where uh, where students are seeming to make a decision to embrace Jesus mm-hmm. and, and 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 all that the, all that we mean by that yeah um, which may just mean because they like coming to youth group because it's fun right uh, which is fine with me because <laughs> Jesus is in youth group too but um, that's much earlier than that yeah right it's middle school when they're making that decision and not, I think not high school or college. That, that's what, I don't remember where I read it. I, I feel like it was something that um, Mark Ostreicher wrote. But a lot of the, the research had suggested that students, it was in middle school that they had really sort of made their decision, sort of made their compass heading. And it's in high school that they worked out the implications of that decision. Yeah. Because I think confirmation, this is why I actually like being Anglican and why I like baptizing infants and why I think um, baptism and confirmation is great is because I think it actually better reflects the spiritual journey of most people who grew up in the church. When you grow mm. up in the church, you are, when you're a three-year-old, when you're a four-year-old, you are part of that church already. You are embraced. A healthy church will embrace you. You are already part of the family of faith at that point. And you don't have the cognitive faculties to have made the decisions that were made on your behalf at baptism, but you are you are part of the family and you are treated as such, which is what baptism is. It unites us to the church um, and to Christ. And we think that happens that early. And then as you grow up, many, many people who grow up in the church don't have a conversion moment where they remember, I once was lost and now I'm found. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the experience of confirmation is this sense of more like, I'm choosing to continue the family business. Like I've grown up and I've been working in, in 
in my family's shop and I've been doing the business of my family, but now I'm finally getting the decision. Do I really want to take on this family trade? Do I want to continue doing this thing that my family has been doing? Um, and I use family sort of doing the dual role of nuclear family and church family. Um, and so then as a, as an early teenager, you want them, they're, they're trying on different identities. Middle schoolers are often, um, you know, very interested in very different things at different moments in middle school. Um, yeah, that's where they are developmentally. Yeah. But by late middle school, they're starting to settle in and you don't want them. People are obviously going to change interests and styles, but you want them to say, you want them at the beginning of their identity formation to be rooted in Jesus, not for them to like figure out their identity and later say, does Jesus fit into this identity? Mm -hmm. You want them to mm -hmm. make the decision about identity formation early. Cause I actually feel like a late confirmation. I think I could argue that late confirmation to say like, we want them once they're mature enough to make that decision is the same logical framework as people who say you shouldn't, you should introduce your kids to every religion because then they can make the decision when they're old enough. The idea is, is that after you formed your identity and collected the information, then you choose whether or not you want to follow Jesus. But I think what we recognize is that the process of gaining that information is itself a biased process. Mm -hmm. By saying you don't need to choose Jesus until later sort of assumes that being without Jesus is neutral and later you can add Jesus into your identity. And by doing an early confirmation, what I'd argue, and I'm sure people would argue differently, by doing an early confirmation, what we're saying is we baptized you before you knew what you were doing and we made these promises. And now you're going to start the journey of becoming who you are becoming. Adolescence is becoming your sort of full self. It's the, it's the internship of life. Mm. And so when you start this internship, or at least shortly into the beginning of this internship, we're, we're going to ask you, you know the basics of this. You've grown up in this world and you're about to build on all of these vocational skills, but we want you to start with Jesus as the foundation of your identity, with following Jesus as who you are. And then as you build all these skills, as you learn the kinds of things you love, as you learn the, you know, the, the things that make you you, we want you to already be rooting that back into Jesus, not later tacking Jesus on as an addition to your personality. Um, yeah. I, I, I think I think early confirmation encourages that. Not that everybody has to be confirmed early or that everybody who's confirmed late is, you know, treating, buying the secular thesis that religion is, you know, ancillary to identity or whatever. But um, I don't know. That, yeah. that, that would be my pitch for early confirmation. Yeah. Well, I, that's interesting. I, I, first of all, what I, what I like about that is the, um, well, it's, there's, it's coming at, it's, it's looking at early confirmation from, from, from a positive light, right? Cause like the, the terrible argument that I've heard for early mm -hmm. confirmation is, well, we need to get them confirmed yeah. because they're gonna walk away from the faith. Like by the time they get to sixteen or seventeen, they're they've walked away. And now our chance is gone. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, like, there's just so many problems. <laughs> and and I, I I kid you not, I have heard that argument. Yeah. Um, as to why we should do it. Um. And so what I like about what, the, but I would say though there seems. The, the phrase false dichotomy comes comes to mind sure. as I'm listening to what you're saying. Uh, I don't – but there's not necessarily a dichotomy there. But I, I don't think necessarily delaying confirmation means I'm telling you to delay forming your identity in Christ. Um, you're right. Because cause I, I, I would say I'm trying to do that with, with all the – sixth, seventh and eighth graders in my, in my youth group right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't look like they're going to get confirmed for another year or two, just mm -hmm. depending on where visitations fall yeah. out here in the wild, wild west. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I wouldn't, I agree with you that yes, what I want to do is to invite my students to identify themselves in Christ mm -hmm. from that very early time. Um, I guess in some ways, I'm, I guess ultimately you could say I'm making the argument for when you 
when you actually go through the confirmation and write may be somewhat arbitrary, but I don't like that either. Hmm. Um, I'm fine with but, that. <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm, I, so I, I tell my students on this confirmation retreat, I'll say, look, when I challenge them about this decision and say, look, I want you to really think about this, to think about whether or not you want to be following Jesus with your life. And I say you're going to have lots of questions. You're always going to be wrestling with this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want you to to think about it. One of the things I say is, look, if you say, like, I don't want you to be pressured into it. If you get confirmed now and then later you realize, like, you had done it out of peer pressure and you, and you, you know, really wanted to follow, you sort of hadn't really resolved in your heart to follow Jesus, but two years from now you really do. You don't need to be reconfirmed. The, 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 the ritual and the reality um, are, are two separate things. And it's best if they overlap. It's, it's best if the ritual and the reality are at the same time. Um, but it, it's, you know, it, it's fine. Um, but if, if you're not there, um, don't feel like you have to. Don't feel like you have to do that because it's better to put these two things together. Now... This is coming from a a pretty um, lowercase s sacramental view of confirmation, right? Like I'm, the way I'm talking about it doesn't leave a lot of room. We haven't even talked about the grace conferred when the bishop lays hands. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about it very much in terms of like simply a public decorate, declaration of faith. And I'd be interested to hear a sort of more high church sacramental you know, seven sacraments type, talk a little bit more about what they feel like is important about the preparation for confirmation. What I push up against is if our rhetoric for confirmation is we don't want them confirmed until they're ready, and by ready we mean fully resolved to follow Jesus, mm-hmm. I think um, we're kidding ourselves that the kind of full resolve you can have as an 18-year-old um it, it is is it that full resolved in the end because look i i was baptized when i was 10 in in the baptist church where i went to when i was 14 i responded to an altar call going to ministry that i felt like god was calling me into ministry for my life i went to moody bible institute um and i had my crisis of faith at like 28 so mm. the the reality is um we're, we're all continually having mm-hmm. moments where we, ha- oh, for goodness sakes, I had my crisis of faith after I was a priest. So mm-hmm. I had, mm-hmm. I, I was, when I was ordained as a priest, I had vowed and I was ready to, to not just follow Jesus, but like <laughs> serve his church forever. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And a year later, I was, I was reading Jesus storybook Bible stories to my son and wondering if I was telling him fairy tales. So right. I, I'm... I can say happily I'm on the, they're not fairy tales, they are real. And, and and I was committed to that. And I do think, this is another point, I think having made that commitment helped me yeah. get through that that darker period. Having a commitment, having a belonging to the church. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the belonging to the church. That's another thing I think is great about Anglicanism, is that um, the fact that the bishop comes in and is the one who lays hands means that... Um, you are not choosing yes to you and Jesus at confirmation. You mm-hmm. are choosing yes to affirming the things that the church has taught for 2,000 years. And you're saying, I'm jumping into this river. I'm not yeah. making my own path. I'm choosing to say, yeah, I'm going to jump in with the rest of you guys. And so yeah. the bishop does it because it's not even your own local church that's doing this. You're jumping in to the faith yeah. once delivered. And so when yeah. you when you feel doubts, when you're wrestling with your faith, you can lean on the rest of the church. In my own crisis of faith, if we weren't saying the creed all together, if we weren't doing these things all together, I would have been sunk, or it would have been a lot harder at least. Jesus can do, mm-hmm. Jesus can work through any church tradition. But um, God really worked in my heart in the ability for me to say, I don't, feel this right now, but I can say it's true and I can say it with these people who are going to carry me. And that's a gift of Anglicanism. If we leverage it, is yeah. to say to our students, you're going to take this step of faith and you are going to have a lot of hard times following Jesus. But this community and the way we worship as a community can be the thing that carries you along 
so it doesn't all rest on you having a personal feeling mm. towards Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, we hope that you feel loving towards Jesus, and man, what a blessing is it when you can when you can engage in your faith with every aspect, when you're truly loving Jesus with your heart, mind, and soul. Um, but on the days when your soul isn't there or the days when your mind isn't there, that's okay because you're not doing this alone. And mm. I think that's what confirmation is sort of beautiful about. And even the way we do baptism, you're baptized, you know, the whole congregation says, you know, welcome to the family of faith. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's a cool strength that Anglicanism has. We just have to know to leverage it. We have to help students open their eyes to the fact that it's not just them and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. Yeah, that's so good. So good. Uh, I, I wish we could, it's, it's radio. So we, we can't just like sit in that for a minute, but <laughs> it feels like you need to like say a quick prayer and then we just need to have some silence. But, um, but yeah, so one of the cool things actually that, that looks like maybe developing in out here in Western Anglicans is there's been this proposal that we start having what, what they're referring to as confirmation festivals. So instead of doing confirmation in the local church when mm -hmm. the bishop comes for visitation, yeah. instead, uh, uh, within our deaneries, the bishop is going to come to some central location, and mm -hmm. we're all all the confirmands and whoever, whomever else wants to be there with them yeah. uh, are going to come to this one central location. And uh, there's so many reasons why I love this idea, yeah. uh, especially if we did it around some sort of a focus on the mission of the church um, and and the the idea of lay ministry yeah. and all those kinds of things. I, I, I just I, I love the idea so much. Um, but but all of this, if we've been talking around this for for the past several minutes, but all this to me goes to that central aspect of of Anglicanism that I mentioned earlier, and that is the place of a bishop, yeah within Anglicanism um, is unique. Uh, not a hundred, not completely unique, and every church has has it on some level. Even yeah. the lowest of the low churches, you know that that have district superintendents and hmm. things like that. Like yeah. he's a bishop, they just don't call him bishop. Yeah. Um, but there's an authority, and there's there's a way that Anglicans like are are a, gather around a bishop and or 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 function under a bishop that is mm -hmm. unique to Anglicanism, and. I, I want my students to understand that, yeah. and I don't, I don't, I don't know. I haven't figured out how to do that. But I, what I want more than anything is when the bishop comes, when they are in the midst of that confirmation rite, and the bishop, he's not just the dude with the funny hat who yeah. sits in the fancy hmm. chair. He, when he places his hands on you, um, because of who he is and the things that that he's that have that God has done through him and yeah. placed upon him, uh, there, it means something. Yeah. It, there's, there is, uh, and I, I don't know how to like, other than just trying to teach on that, I, I can't figure out how to draw my students into that understanding of that reality. You got to just lean um, into your youth pastor and say, just feel it. It's a big deal. <laughs> just do it. Just think about it. Do you not understand how much God loves you? I'm sorry. I'm, that's a, I'm getting into rant mode. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, but there is something about that. And I think I, I probably have an underdeveloped um, curriculum of, of the Episcopate for, for my students. Because I think there is something about... Because it's rare when the bishop shows up, it's like you have to take advantage of those moments of like, mm -hmm. now he's mm -hmm. here, like, this is a big deal. Um, yeah, but there is something, I think, reminding them that this is the bishop for... Um, for lots of churches. Like, this isn't just your your person. This is the, the bishop. This is someone who we have authority under. This is someone who who leads other churches. And he is a symbol. Um, he is a, a symbol of the sort of the unity of the church, of the fact that you are not... Like, not only are you part of this congregation, which is cool, and you're part of this family, but we're part of something even bigger than that. You know, mm -hmm. when, when we ordain people, it's into Christ's one holy Catholic and apostolic church, right? Like, like we're ordaining you for this mystical church, which is, you know, across the globe um, and in some ways is visibly 
fragmented in parts, but our bishops are some of the symbols of where we're not fragmented, some of the places where there is some unity, where we can have institutional unity beyond the, the sort of mystical unity we have in Christ. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that makes a huge um, or can have an impact. And hopefully it's part of that catechetical process for youth to say, look, you are not just part of a church. You are not just a, a person who has a personal philosophy called Christianity. You're invited into this way and into this group of people called the church that does this stuff for the world and is the visible sign and it hopefully makes them care about institutional unity and not just like, Hey, I just hang out with my friends. Right. Yeah. It's, it makes me think of, of, uh, again, as part of the same conversation I was having with my Bishop recently, and he was talking about everything we doing, everything we do as a church is, is a part of taking a bite of a seven layer sandwich, right? Hmm. So you have, you have the personal, you have the familial, you have the, the, um, the the local church you've mm-hmm. got the diocese you've got the um the province you have the the communion and i'm forgetting one i i can't even remember what they all were yeah. but the idea was that everything we do is is taking a bite of that seven layer sandwich yeah um and he said and i had never thought of it that way i was like okay yeah i can see that i've been operating in that way but i i would never have articulated it that way necessarily oh yeah i'm gonna steal um, that yeah, but it's such a cool idea that even when I'm uh, when I'm in here in my prayer room by myself doing morning prayer, mm-hmm. I'm taking a bite of that seven layer sandwich. Yeah, um, and I lo- and I j- I want to bring that idea somehow to my students to so that they would understand. To it's part of the it's p- part of it. Some small part of it is the you are not alone in yeah. this kind of deal. Yeah. Um, and and it it stretches it stretches back into history it stretches forward into the future, um, it's all of those things and it, it's very easy to get overwhelmed and uh, you know students these days are cynical enough that they're just gonna be like yeah whatever you know <laughs> you're just trying to get me to do it or whatever <laughs> you're but, just trying to sell me on this yeah what exactly you, what's your angle <laughs> um, yeah I think and that's you know in in other church traditions without such visible signs of unity, that kind of lesson can be taught where you can say, look, when you read the Bible, you're reading the Bible that all the Christians read, and and you can do that kind of thing. Um, And you might be able to go up to denomination. Um, Although, I mean, if most most American Christians are in megachurches, just simply by population, most American Christians experience nothing beyond the brand of their megachurch. There is no broader unity than that. I mean, maybe they're part of like Gospel Coalition or Acts Twenty Nine or something like that. Are but, they? Do you um, know any statistics? Are most American Christians in a megachurch? How could they not be? I mean, it, it just the, the numbers of people in megachurches, yeah, like I don't like know. Harvest uh, around here in Chicagoland, which is going through its own internal turmoil. But I mean, they were at one point like thirteen thousand people, and you think yeah. how many yeah. churches add up? Willow Creek, I'm sure, was a whole bunch more. Um, yeah. Anyways, the. Again, the, the strength of Anglicanism or the thing we can lean into, one of our one of our tools is this visible unity where we can yeah. we don't have to just say, hey, in some sort of interesting spiritual way, there's this connection with every Christian. We can say, you know, in this visible way, look, you are connected to these other churches under this bishop, and you're connected to the, all these other churches in the in the the continent because of our College of Bishops. And mm-hmm. we're connected to the church in Africa because of GAFCON. And, mm-hmm. and, and we're connected to, to these other non-Anglican churches through our ecumenical dialogues, as, as broken and as difficult as they are. Mm-hmm. We are connected in all these ways, and we're, we work on visible unity. Um, and I think, that actually, I think that actually has some leverage with modern students, or I think it, it sort of ideologically it might, because it's saying there is a visible symbol that there is a, a visible institutional way you can see this reality rather than just me saying, believe it because you and the Baptist down the road are both in Jesus. Um, yeah, there are no sacraments to, to show you that there's no, there's no physical reality to this that I can point to, but just I'm saying it. So it must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have some sort of physical visible symbol of that. Yeah, well, and if if you think about the way humans work, and you think about 
the reason why you know one 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 major way companies go about marketing themselves is is giving you the sense well that everybody's doing this mm-hmm. or all the cool people are doing this so yeah. you should be doing this um and then and and so you want to have you know the the apple with the bite out of it on your computer yeah. or on your phone um because that means you're in this like that's a like not healthy good mm-hmm. <laughs> version of of something that we're talking about here that I think is more healthy and good because hopefully again it's orienting us to Jesus in a yeah. way that we all need and that we were all created for um but yeah there is that aspect of um being connected to something larger that I think makes makes all makes all of our hearts sing like yeah. there's something about the human psyche that for the most part we all want to be a part of something that's not just me or me and a couple of other people. We want to be a part of something larger and that seems more significant. So I think I hear what you're saying. We need to get Chris Pratt to Instagram the ACNA logo <laughs> and that'll make us all really encouraged. And I get good. it. I get it. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. Same page. <laughs> all right. Well, um, <coughs> excuse me. So I think we're probably wrapping up the stuff we have here, but Um, anybody who's listening, who wants to weigh in on the number of things we've said, please comment on Facebook. Um, I think we have a a Twitter account that will tweet this from as well. That sounds like a thing we have or should have. Um, but find us personally. (laughs) If we don't, we're going to get one. That's right. We'll have one by the end of recording. Um, email us personally, hunt us down, send a carrier pigeon, whatever you want to do to express your, your strong opinion about this. Or if there are aspects of Anglican youth ministry in particular that you want to hear someone talk about that you want to spark some ideas, um, let us know, and we'll um, we'll record again soon. Yeah, and I I, I got to be honest, it feels like we've only scratched the surface. I think there's more here, so I, I hope we'll continue this conversation. All right. Well, I I think we we end with a collect usually. That's what we do, right? It's been so long. Oh, that's right. Let You're me, right. It's been so long that I forgot. All right. Let me let me look it up. I, I'll pick whatever collect common worship has for today speaking of, of the english um yeah. oh I, I i like this week's colic so we're good so let me let me pray here oh god you know us to be set in the midst of so many and great dangers that by reason of the frailty of our nature we cannot always stand upright grant to us such protection and strength as may support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations through jesus christ your son our lord who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, friends.